You have heard that it, was, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to express my appreciation for the privilege of being with you tonight. Through the years, Asbury has honored me far more than I ever deserved, and this is one of those, and I do not take it lightly. To have the privilege of speaking to Asburyans that are coming back to this campus, Asburyans across the years representing classes, how many classes, goodness knows, have you come back and then I have the opportunity to share with you. Always to come back is a memory thing, isn't it? You find yourself walking around and as you go from building to building, there are certain things that happen inside you and you remember what is taking place. I never cease to be amazed at the power of memory. There is something about it that it can break the bonds of the moment and set you free so that you can live in an era that's not the moment and that is not there anymore. Uh, the decades recede and you are in another period. I think there's something about memory that is analogous to the very eternal nature of God because there is something about him that there is no past or present or future with him. Now he Express that, you will remember, in the words of Jesus, before Abraham was, I am. In our imaginations, we may try to explore the future, but how limited that is. But when it comes to memory, it's astounding how real can be the return of a previous moment to you. That happened to me. I think I was about 37 I remember that when I came to Asbury, I was 17. So it was 20 years after my freshman year at Asbury. I was pastoring in New York State. I was sitting in my study and the phone rang. And suddenly I recognized the voice of my freshman sponsor of 20 years before, Phil Heinerman. And to my shock, I was as nervous as a cat. 
I remember that when he spoke to me, he invited me to come to Minneapolis and speak in his church. And I stuttered like a freshman. I was 17 years of age again as I talked with him. Now, uh, there were reasons for that. Because, you see, he had influenced me profoundly. I remember that his roommate told me about what it was like to live with him. He said, Phil, here's the alarm in the morning, and it rings just about three, and it's shut off. He goes, takes his shower, and is back by 5.15, and from then until 6 o'clock, he's on his knees in prayer. He said, at 6, I get up. And for the half hour that I fiddle around, he sits and reads his New Testament. And then at 6.30, I leave, and he goes back to his knees. And then at 7, he goes and gets breakfast. Now, uh, that had an impact on me. Because, you see, he was one of the best athletes on the campus. I remember the middle of a tournament basketball game. And the ball went out of bounds, and the referee threw it to Phil to put it back into play. And Phil threw it back to the referee, and he said, oh, I touched it last. So uh, it was interesting. He, had an, he was the best speaker on campus. I remember that I thought, my, if I could ever communicate with an audience the way he communicates with. And I expect that for years afterwards, I had many of the same mannerisms that Phil Heinerman had because unconsciously I admired him so profoundly. He was an excellent student and went on to a significant ministry. But the key thing in my relationship with him was one night I said to him, could I talk with you about my spiritual life? He took me on a walk down between the administration building and Morrison. And as we walked along, I said to him, Phil, I don't know anything about prayer. Can you help me? And he simply looked back and said, how much do you pray, Dennis? And I lied. And he said, double it. Now, at that time, I was working in the, ba in the bakery every morning. And so I had to go to work at 5 o'clock. Now, in the enthusiasm of my young soul in this atmosphere, I remember that I set my alarm for 4 o'clock. And many mornings I slept on my knees in, in Wesley Dormitory between 4 and 5. But, you know, it was out of that that I learned the most significant thing in knowing Christ and in knowing the abundant life that the best way to begin any day is with him in that kind of communication. And it has been the pattern. Now, I was not disciplined like Phil was. In fact, I really uh, was one of the most undisciplined kids that ever hit this campus. But it's one thing to be undisciplined, and it's another thing to be content with your lack of discipline and settle with it. But if somebody can put the standard before you and you can just keep fighting some way, somehow, there is deliverance from some of the problems there. 
But there was a second thing that Asbury did for me. It enlarged my vision. When I came as a freshman in the dormitory where I lived, there was two fellows from the Orient, Ernie and Ed Kilburn, Ernie and Elmer Kilburn. Ed was an upperclassman. Now, because our names began together, K-I-L-K-I-N, for four years we sat next to each other in required chapel. And I began to learn about Japan, Korea, China, the Orient, missions, a world that I had never known about. And there was a red-headed kid on campus that year, in those days, by the name of David Seaman. My second week on campus, he came to me and said, Now, Ken Law, if there are any good-looking girls you want to meet, just let me know. I'll introduce you to them. <laughs> I really didn't have the guts in those days, but I regret that I didn't look back at him and say, Siemens, I can take care of myself. <laughs> but in my class was Paul Haynes. And also, We've had chapel speakers like Alex Reed and E. Stanley Jones and Wascombe Pickett and the Corbett's. And slowly, the world began to be something of which I was conscious. Japan, China, Korea, India, Africa, South America, they became living things for me. And I remember that uh, Ernie and Elmer Kilburn's parents and Paul Haynes were in concentration or in prisoner of war camps in China. And I remember when they came home and I had the privilege of meeting them. Now, can you imagine what that did for me? You see, I grew up in a little town in North Carolina, down in the eastern part next to the coast, where my little town was surrounded by swamps. To get in or out of my town, you had to go through Big Swamp, Black Swamp, Bear Swamp, or Raft Swamp. <laughs> not many people got in and not many people got out. <laughs> and here I was sitting with people who had traveled the world. But better, they had traveled the world for Christ. I can remember David's older brother, J.T., and then his father, their father, who lived here, you know, on his furloughs. And when he would walk across campus, the atmosphere would change. My world was changing, and I was changing. One of the things that Asbury taught me that this is our, my father's world, he gave me a doctrine of creation. Because you see, uh, I took a course in astronomy geology, biology, history, French. And when I went to chapel, the astronomer had the prayer and the geologist read the scripture and the historian told about doing mission work in Cuba. And I began to realize that uh, the curriculum introduced me to the world, but it was a world that had a theological character to it as well as a scientific. And there were those natural laws and impersonal forces that explain so much of our world. But behind and sustaining it all was the one that we worshiped in chapel. And chapel became the center of my educational life together. 
to let me know that it was not something off on the side, but that the whole curriculum was built around the fact that we live in our Father's world, and it really at heart is a friendly world to us because he made it for us. So I found myself more at home in my world. You know, uh, I realized that the one who made it cared about me because he cared about everybody. He cared about us enough that it was safe for us to trust him. I had a roommate from Alabama, a tall, lanky, red-headed kid named Sammy Stabler. I don't know what I was doing, but one morning, along about the 1st of December, and we didn't get out of school until the 18th of December in those days, I was walking down from Wesley to the back of Morrison, and here came Sammy from his morning work. He had to work his way through school. And as we bumped into each other, he said, Dennis, let's go downstairs in Hughes and pray together for a little. And I said, great. So we sat down. And he said, Dennis, today's the day to give thanks. You see, yesterday I got a check in the mail from a governmental program for students work that's enough to, buy, to pay me out in the office so I will have my term paid for. And he said, 10 days from now, I get another check for my industrial work and it will be enough to buy a round trip bus ticket to Alabama and back for Christmas. He said, you see, when I came this fall, I had $2 and a half in my pocket. And when I got there, I found that I had to pay 75 cents to get a key for my room. And so he said, I began the quarter with a dollar and 75 cents, but I'm gonna end it, all bills paid, and I'll be back the 1st of January. <laughs> Don't know how I'll get through, but I believe he'll get me there. Now, you know, uh, I didn't have that problem. My father was a lawyer. But I remember I was 38, and an inner voice said, I want you to go to graduate school again. I said, what do you mean? He said, Brandeis. I knew what it meant. I knew it meant three years of sitting in class, reciting like a freshman, three solid years. I knew the program, and it was very expensive. I, we were, had five children, and I knew if I did it, I had to resign a pastorate. And I said, God, how can I do that? Well, it was interesting, three years later, we were putting our stuff on a truck to take a job teaching at Asbury Seminary. It was a Wednesday night, and when the last box was put on the truck, I turned to the guy who was driver, and I said, when will you unload that? He said, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, in Wilmore. I said, uh, when do I have to pay you? He said, Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. I said, what will it cost? Well, he said, it looks to me like it will be about $1,000. I had $387 in my bank account. I thought, now what do I do? 
Whom can I borrow from to leave town? <laughs> and then I thought of preacher, borrowing money to leave town. And I said, Lord, you've brought, gotten us this far. That night I got a phone call. A lady who was secretary or treasurer of a missions committee in a church that I had served and left a year before. And she said, Dennis, we had a meeting tonight and we were talking about the fact you're leaving the area and thought we should do something to let you know our love for you and appreciation for your ministry here. I have a little something for you. Could you come by my classroom in the morning? And so I went by her classroom the next morning. She handed me an envelope and I took it and thanked her, went out and got in my car and went on my way, hardly thinking about it, when suddenly an inner voice said, why don't you check on that envelope? So I opened it and it was for $1,000. So I had $387 when I came to in my bank account when I came to Wilmore to teach. Now, you know, they put my name, or Elsie's and mine, on the library. I wonder if they shouldn't have put Sammy Stabler's, because I never would have had the privilege of being president of Asbury College. If it hadn't been for something that Sammy Stabler illustrated for me and lived. Now, uh, it, it taught me a lot of other things. But the thing that's most significant to me and that I want to give my f biggest attention to is it gave me a different understanding of God and a different understanding of grace. I've, I've found across the years that implicit within the Asbury faith, there is a different picture of God than that which most people have. And there is a different understanding of grace. Now, I'm not about to suggest that when I left here as a senior, I understood all of that. It's taken me years to dig my way through much of it, and I'm still learning. But the deeper I dig and the more longer I go, the more awesome it becomes to me, and the more grateful I am that in the sovereign providence of God, he let me have four years in this atmosphere. Now that's fresh for me in a special way because uh, just recently I came across a book written by Mark Knoll, who is maybe the best, but certainly one of the most outstanding his American historians of American religion history in the United States. He teaches at Wheaton. And he's produced sort of his magnum opus, which is called America's God. And it is a study of American religion from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. So it covers the 18th century and, uh, and two-thirds of, of the 19th century. And I read it. I have not read all of it, but I've read sections of it. I noticed that he, first of all, discusses Jonathan Edwards and the influence of Jonathan Edwards on American life, the life in the colonies, the religious life. And Jonathan Edwards was a towering, gigantic figure. But then the Methodists came to this country in 
In 1771, when Francis Asbury came, there were 300 Wesleyans in the United States, and there were four Wesleyan preachers. Now, before Asbury died in 1813, he died in 1815. In 1813, there were some 140,000 Methodists in the United States that were white and there were well over 40,000 that were black. And in their summer camp meetings, they had a million people. <laughs> now you think about the population of the United States in 1813, and you've got a million people under the sound of Wesleyan preaching. So by 1860, one out of every three church members in the United States was a Methodist. And the theology that informed that Methodism was influencing Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Baptists. It went across denominational lines. And Mark Knoll tries to deal with that. <laughs> so he tries to explain what the power of it was because, you see, a theological ambience in this country shifted between 1770 and 1860. Now, he says there are basically five elements in that Wesleyan message. Now, he said they were different. <laughs> in fact, he says, to the most of the church people in the United States, they were heterodox, and they were unorthodox. So those are his two words to describe the theology that is the heritage of this institution, heterodox and unorthodox. Now, in what way were they heterodox? The first is that uh, God has no favorites. And he doesn't pick out certain people to be saved and leave certain people to another destiny. And that was radically revolutionary in the United States in 1770. In fact, at the heart of that theology is something more. It is an understanding of a God who doesn't love because of the nature of the person or the object loved. He loves because of who he is. <laughs> so that the reason he loves is because of who he is, not because of what he's loving. So how can you make a difference between people? because he, by his nature, loves all. Now, that was a problem for Jonathan Edwards. I found a doctoral dissertation written by a Presbyterian's seminary professor from Austin, Michael Jenkins, on the doctrine of atonement in Jonathan Edwards and in a Scottish theologian, John MacLeod Campbell. I read about 230 pages on Jonathan Edwards. And when I finished, I was deeply, profoundly sad. It hurt. Why? Jonathan Edwards may be the brightest theologian and maybe the best philosophical mind that the United States ever knew. But more than that, you will go one whale of a long ways to find a more devout 
man than Jonathan Edwards. You read his journal. He loved God with all of his heart. And he was a pastor. When he preached that sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, it was pastoral love that caused him to preach it in hopes that somebody in that crowd would turn in faith and enter into the redemption. But you know, when Jonathan Edwards stood up to preach, his hope was that somewhere in that crowd there might be somebody among the elect. But Francis Asbury, when he got up in the morning, could in his heart of hearts say, you know, every person I meet today, (laughs) I won't meet a soul anywhere that God doesn't love and want to redeem. And so every person I bump into is a candidate for what I have to offer. And so he pulled himself out of bed and went on. Now, uh, that's part of our heritage. It's a good one. Now, the second thing we share with those others, and there even Mark Knowles says the Methodists were orthodox, and that was that we all have sinned. And when we sin, we lost the glory. All have sinned and lack the glory of God, the presence is gone. And when God goes out of a person's life, he is left blind and bound. He's got a false understanding of himself, and he has no capacity to break out of his sin. Asbury shared that with Edwards. So that when when Asbury got up in the morning, he knew that every person was a potential candidate and that every person needed it. (laughs) So every person he met, He knew needed what he had to offer. But there's a third factor, and that is that God has made a provision for our blindness and for our bondage and our self-interest and our sin. And that answer God has given to us in Christ. Now, you see, the difference between the way Francis Asbury looked at the cross And Jonathan Edwards was, Francis Asbury could say Calvary is a window on the very heart of God. If you want to know what God's heart is like, just look at Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when Jonathan Edwards looked at Calvary, because of a paradigm in his head from which he could not escape, He had to say, the cross is an arbitrary expression of a single decision of God about a limited group of people. You weep for a person like that. But you and I have never been bound by that kind of thought because we know that when Christ came, he came for every person. But he said, but you see, we believe that in that cross, there is an answer to the need that sin has produced in the human heart. Now here, Asbury, 
for Mark Knoll was a bit heretical, or for those in that early day in this country. Because you see, most evangelicals believe that Christ died to take care of the penalty of our sin. But Francis Asbury believed Christ died to take care of the problem of human sin in the human heart. That yes, he can take away the penalty, and he's provided that, but there is something about the blood of Christ that can move into the depths of a person's being and cleanse the inner recesses of his heart and deal with what it is that causes a person to sin. Now, uh, Noel says in his words, this is that heretical doctrine of the Methodists that God can not only deal with outward sin, he can deal with inward sin. And you know today, there are not a great many people who believe that. General evangelicalism doesn't. Take even the charismatic movement with its emphasis upon the spirit. I can hardly find a charismatic theologian who believes that when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, that that's possible this side of the resurrection. But you see in our heritage, there's that belief that there is something about the blood of Christ that can cleanse the human heart from sin. Now, there's a fourth element. What is that fourth element? That's the gift of the Spirit. That when Christ left, he said, I will send to you one who will take my place and do for you what I can't do, the Spirit. Now, what is the role of the Spirit? He is the seeking Spirit. He's the one who goes after everybody. And he is the connecting person between the Father and the Son and ourselves. And he comes and he pursues us and he woos us. And when he comes, he comes and opens our eyes. And if we will let him, he will show us our need. And then when he has shown us our need, in prevenient grace, he will restore to our bound, self-bound hearts the freedom to say, can you set me free from myself and release me from my bondage? And then he can quicken you and set you free. Now, what is it that he wants to do in setting us free? That's the fifth thing, which uh, <laughs> Martin Old says, the Methodists proclaimed as adamantly as all their Christian friends derided them. And that was on the matter of what they spoke of as perfect love. That a human heart can come to the place where Christ is so central that the very love of God can be poured into that heart and be can become the determinative force in that person's life. 
Now, let me say, for decades I misunderstood that. Because what I thought was being said, somehow or other he can perfect my love to where I'll love my enemy. And when he strikes me on the one cheek, I'll gladly turn the other. Or I will pray for those that despitefully use me. But that's not what they were saying. What they were saying was that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will shed abroad in our hearts God's love, not ours. And then the very love that you see in Calvary can be imparted to us. And then we can respond, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he is within us. Now, uh, the best illustration of that that has helped clarify my thinking the most comes from Corey Ten Boom. Many of you are familiar with Corey Ten Boom. She and her sister were in a German concentration camp. Her sister died in the concentration camp. And through a fluke, she escaped. And then had a remarkable ministry. She had a ministry of hiding Jews and saving them. And then after the war, she had a remarkable ministry of reconciliation, preaching forgiveness, across, particularly across Europe. She was in Munich. And she had just spoken on forgiveness that uh, the Jew had to forgive the Nazi and the Nazi had to forgive those that he was offended by and so forth and that the love of Christ must rule. So after she had finished speaking, she was greeting people when suddenly she became of a, of a man standing waiting to speak to her, his face aglow and grinning. And she said, I looked at him and I froze. Because he was a guard, one of the guards that stood by and leered at us while we took our showers in the concentration camp. And suddenly, I was back in that concentration camp. There was a pile of clothes. There was a smell. There were those leering guards. And there he stood, smiling and saying, thank you, Fraulein, for that wonderful message on forgiveness. You see, Jesus has forgiven me my sins. And there's his hand. She said, I suddenly found my hand wouldn't move. How could I shake hands with him? And all the indignation and the anger the resentment, and suddenly a voice said, I paid the same price for him I did for you. I suffered the same agony for him I did for you. And I looked up and said, oh God, in my inner heart, if I'm to raise, shake hands with him, you have to raise my hand. And she said, I found myself shaking hands and an incredible thing occurred. Suddenly, there was a hot electric current that started in my shoulder and went down through my arm, through his hand and into his body. And I found myself in, 
encompassed in a load of love for him that was overwhelming and almost more than I could bear. And she said, it wasn't I. (laughs) Now, you know what came to me out of that? Divine love is a gift from above. Somebody said, you think you're perfect? That isn't the question about me being perfect or you being perfect. The question is about his love. Can he put a love in me that will overcome and cleanse me from my resentments, my hostilities, my arrogance, my self-pity? Do you know what I've concluded on Tori Ten Boom's story in Romans 5? If I don't have it, you know why I don't have it? It's because I don't want it. Because he's the God who is the giving God. (laughs) And he wants to shed abroad his love in my heart. And he will do it if I want him to. And if I want him to. Some of the evidence that are in the very nature of God will be reflected in me, not because of who I am, but because of the one who dwells and floods within me. I have a friend, a dentist. Well, he's one of these technical guys who's got a name I can't even, the name for his work I can't even pronounce. But he was in Romania on a witness mission. He was sitting with a Romanian who said, let me tell you a story. He said, I found myself in a prison working with a murderer. And I took him as far as I could take him. And I knew he needed somebody who was more mature than I as a Christian to help him. So I looked for a pastor that I as a layman felt I had done what I could do. So he said, I called this pastor and I said, I've been working with this guy in prison. He's made a profession of faith and he's trying to start a Christian life. And I wonder if you would go minister to him. And he told the pastor the guy's name. The pastor curtly, abruptly, and hastily said, I cannot do it and hung up on him. He said, that floored me. I respected the man. He said, I wondered for about three days. Why? And the phone rang, and it was a pastor. And he said, I want to thank you for your call. I needed to have you call me. I went to the prison. I had the privilege, actually, of leading him to a living faith in Christ. He's the man who murdered my son. I needed to go. Thank you for calling me. Now, you know, that's not human. But that's what the world needs. The world doesn't need you and me, but it needs a God in us who can 
give that kind of love. But you and I can't have it unless we're willing to take it. And when we get, if we're to be willing, we've got to give up all those self-defensive things, those inner justifications. Because you see, when that love comes, it has to have a pure container in which to rest. I'm glad I know about that kind of gospel. You see, I'll never meet anybody he doesn't love. I'll never meet anybody he doesn't need, doesn't, who doesn't need God. I'll never meet anybody that God does not have an adequate answer for the inner needs of his heart and his spirit. And I'll never meet anybody that the spirit hasn't been there ahead of me. I'll always be second. And the answer is a kind of love that flows between the Father, Son, and Spirit and wants its dwelling in our hearts. Now, you and I are privileged people. I read an editorial in CT this week. You know my association with CT over the years. Discussion of Bill Bennett, who's been one of the men I've admired, who suddenly will find he's lost millions gambling. And the thrust of the CT editorial was, who among us can throw stones? Now I appreciate that. But I'm so sorry that CT couldn't say somewhere, there is a power that can deliver a man from that kind of addiction. There is a power in the blood of Christ that can set a person free from that kind of thing. I was interested in yesterday's Wall Street Journal carried an article on the Review and Outlook section called Jesus Saves. <laughs> and you know what it was? It's the story of a murderer in a Texas prison who through Chuck Colson's ministry. Is a restored human being and a creative, loving person in our society. He was he was in the White House Wednesday, <laughs> and the President of the United States was shaking hands and welcoming into the Oval Office <laughs> a former criminal. And the Wall Street Journal said, "But of course, it was sort of like meeting an old friend." because the last time he'd seen him was 1997, when they had their arms around each other and were singing in a Texas prison, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Do we really believe that God can clean up our hearts, our attitudes, our inner spirits? You know... Uh, this kind of preaching, this kind of truth has been derided, those perfectionist Methodists. Should we get quiet about it? It's not about you or me. It's about him. It's not about what we are. It's about what he can do. Can you and I keep quiet about what the blood of Christ 
can do in a human heart? Sam Shoemaker used to come to Princeton. Some of you heard me tell this. I always loved to go hear him. Because one of the things he'd do would be stand in that high pulpit and lean over and look down at those Princetonians and say, you princes of privilege. <laughs> and then he'd fire away. And it was fun to listen. You and I are privileged, princes of privilege. Because there are masses of people who do not believe, Christians, who do not believe you can have a clean heart. And so they don't seek and can't believe. And then there are others who don't want to face the question because they don't want to give up their inner sin. But may God help Asbury to be faithful to Christ, to the atonement, the cross, the Holy Spirit, and the heart and nature of God. Now, that's what I felt I ought to say. This may be the last time I ever get to speak from this pulpit. <laughs> so I've taken advantage of you. And I've held you until I've finished and it opened my soul. But you see, that's what's on the cornerstone of this building. And that's what's meant by what's over the organ. Should we let this message die? No. We have to proclaim it, but first, we have to live it. Now, I notice that our closing song is a hymn of our class, 1943, a charge to keep I have. Be wrong to end chapel without giving you an invitation to pray, wouldn't it? So the altar is here. Or there's... Does an altar need to be rebuilt somewhere in your heart? Is there a new understanding of grace you need to claim? Is there an old covenant you need to renew? It's appropriate for Asbarians before they go to do some of those things. So as we sing, the altar is as open tonight as it was when you were a student in chapel. <laughs>